Hey listener, thanks for being here. I'm Ludo. And I'm Marge. And this is Speak It Out, a podcast by Shrink It Out. Here, we tell your stories and share our thoughts and encourage debate on psychological and social well-being. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Shrink It Out's podcast. It's been a while, and this is our first podcast episode of 2024. So we're very excited. Yes. So today we will talk a lot about sexology and what it is, what uh, this discipline involves, and some interesting tips for people who would like to um, pursue this type of studies and discipline. We have a guest with us. Her name is Sarah. Let's introduce herself. You know Ludo and I already, but maybe Sarah, you want to say something about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me and Happy New Year. Um, So I study clinical psychosexology with Ludo. Um, Before this, I did a bachelor's in general psychology, and I also did a degree in sex education and sex well-being studies. Um, meaning, yeah, I'm a qualified sexuality educator and I have done some freelance sex ed classes, mostly for people above the age of 18. And then I wanted to go into a more clinical route and that's how I ended up in the same class as Ludo. Wow, that's super interesting. Ludo, do you have any points you want to add before we start? Yeah, Sarah and I studied together, so we met a year and a half ago. And we thought that this was something cool that we could do. There might be people out there that are interested in what we do. They're often curious. And yeah, like Marga, you said, if I want to pursue a similar type of path or in career, I maybe don't know how. So this can be a little like introduction to what it is that we do in our course. Thank you, Ludo. I think this is a very good bridge to start uh, talking about sexology in general. And I think it's not a very well understood field or like a lot of people don't really know what um, is encompassed under the field of sexology. Perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about uh, it, what it means and what it means also for you to study uh, this discipline. So the definition of sexology, I believe, is it is the study of human sexual life and relationships. Um, But because we are focusing at a clinical and psycho perspective, that just means that we do more of the therapy and psycho being then the psychology aspect of sexology. Because, of course, sexology also includes a massive medical field, which we also need to know, but it's not the priority of our studies in particular. So, yeah, everything that we do includes gender, orientation, intimacies, fertility children also cross-cultural and historical perspectives how things change it includes aging it includes disease and it includes neurodivergence I've still forgotten and missed things out but just to emphasize like it's such a broad subject and not only about sex uh, and certainly not only about sex in the sense of penetration Um, it's a much bigger thing than I think a lot of people realize not only the psychological aspects related to sex and sexuality, but also psychological well-being. So how any mental illness can influence um, sexual functioning or how sexual functioning can influence our psychological well-being. So we also look at almost every 
uh, mental illnesses and how those interact with sexual life. And like, I'd be interested in a more like, um, yeah, personal perspective of like what it's like for you or like what it means to you to study uh, sexology. Um, I think for me, I love the study and I'm super excited to be studying it. It's something, of course, like very niche. And this is the only master's degree taught in English in the whole of Europe. So it's um, excluding the UK, sorry. It's uh, a very cool experience to be here and to be able to do it. Um, but I also at the same time struggle in social situations when people ask what you study, it's not always appropriate or doesn't feel appropriate to suddenly say the word sex. And then I've had my own personal struggles with that of not wanting to lie and not wanting to say something that isn't the truth, but realizing that maybe this 80 year old grandma doesn't need to know that I'm doing sexology. Mm -hmm. Um, so I find that really tricky. But then on the other hand, I love it. It's given me in my personal life so so much information, so many different things to think about. And I've got such an open career ahead of me, which is also really interesting. Uh, coming from a background with sex education as well, I've really enjoyed the overlap between the two and understanding how beneficial education is. In Then when you get to the later stages with clinical um, that actually, if we'd improved the education in the beginning, that maybe for a lot of people, it wouldn't have had to get to seeing a sexologist. So I've really enjoyed that overlap. Yeah. And figuring out how to tell people when you're out in a bar. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I do think that it's probably one of the coolest things that I've done so far in my life, which is a little bit weird because... I mean, why would it be cool? I'm just studying a degree like any other. But at the same time, I feel very much like in contact with myself studying sexology. And I feel like it is something, I don't know, that I was always meant to study. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, like Sarah, I can very much relate to not always knowing how to approach social social situations when I say what I study and actually sometimes I lie and I just say that I study psychology. Which also isn't a lie. That's yeah. something I've had to tell myself. It, it is psychology. That's true. <laughs> it is. And it's also okay to lie if then I have to feel uncomfortable. I think that that is literally proof of how much work there still is to be done. The fact that us studying what we study, we do this every day and yet we still are unsure how to approach a social situation um, in just saying the word sex or saying that we study sex because the reactions that we get can get like are, are so odd in a way yeah I think one of the positive things that I found about telling people I study sexology is the amount of people who are so enthusiastic about it who uh tell personal stories of when they've needed that when they wish that they'd have had better education and people that are so interested and so happy to hear that this is a thing and that there are younger generations who are going to grow up with this being normal and this being a career path um so I think that's one of the nicest sides of the reactions of course there's some really odd and strange reactions that you get as well um but yeah, despite a lot of people maybe not knowing what it is, a lot of people are happy to hear about it. Yeah, because it's such a personal discipline. Like you're talking about something really intimate and it can go two ways. Either people, yeah, will like open up 
or ask you questions or they will go completely the other way and then make comments that are like uncalled for or just make you feel uncomfortable for no reason. Yeah, that sounds like that's a very interesting point that you bring up. Um, like I've experienced uh, Ludo having to, I mean, answer the simple question of what are you studying? And I could definitely sense the indecisiveness of like, what should I do? Which completely makes sense. But it seems like you've found some sort of uh, balance on when you feel like you can say it and when you don't feel like sharing it. But yeah, but also interesting that there are some very good reactions out there and uh, a lot of interest in the subject. Maybe we you could also share a bit more like, yeah, Luda, you mentioned um, this is something that you always felt um, like you were meant to do. And Sarah, you also talked about like your past with sex education and how it connects. I would be interested in knowing like how you got to study something so niche and so also stigmatized and definitely not a very common uh, discipline. Uh, for me, I think it came from a pretty young age when I had sex education in schools. And where I lived in England at the time had actually very good sex education, especially from what I've heard from peers at university, uh, which is a really diverse group of people. I realized that we were given a lot of information at, at like a correct age, but I always had more questions because I, we were split so often between boys and girls. And I always wanted to know what the boys class was learning about. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized that they were doing masturbation and like how to, when should you, what's appropriate. Meanwhile, we were doing periods. We were doing how to put a tampon in. When should you use a pad? When do you tell your mom when you first start bleeding? And they are not equals. Uh, so yeah, from a pretty, from like my teenage years, when that sort of dawned on me that that's what we were taught, I realized that I I disagreed with that and I'd love to go into that area, but not really knowing how or, or what that person does, uh, who, who is a sex educator. We did psychology at my school and I got really interested in it. I really liked it. Um, but I kind of kept thinking that although everybody, everybody at some point in their life might need to see a psychologist, uh, that's not assured not everybody is going to suffer with depression or anxiety or schizophrenia every single person on the planet will be impacted by sex you could be asexual you could never have sex in your entire life but you will be impacted by it uh, by relationships by intimacy by your gender sexual orientation whatever so it kind of baffled me that there was such a lack of research and education in that part even though we knew so much now on yeah on depression and anxiety and ADHD and things like this so that was sort of my motivation to kind of carry on in this direction and then some google searches later found out that sexology was a thing and then I was sort of just set that I was like that's that's what I want to do um not necessarily the easiest career that I could have picked myself but it's good fun <laughs> Um, the last point Sarah made is very similar to what I wanted to say. Essentially, just realizing that sex and sexuality are just such a big part of who we are as not just humans, but like living beings, like animals, and realizing how many people ignore that part of themselves, either forget about it, ignore, like, 
ignore it or neglect it and seeing how it actually has an impact on pretty much every area of our life. If we were just all a little bit more in contact with it, the world would be a better place. Very true. Even if you're asexual or you're completely addicted to sex or just literally and like whoever and whatever you are, like Sarah said, you are affected by sex and sexuality, sexual thoughts, um, sexual simulation. It is a part of us. It surrounds us. It's within us. We look at eating or we look at lungs and the heart. We should be looking at sex as well. No, I actually don't find it an extreme statement at all, not only because it affects all of us, also because the lack of knowledge in in this area of life can be extremely like dangerous for yourself and for others. So for sure, I completely agree with you. Just as you were talking, I like had to think of the fact that uh, obviously um, our society is changing a lot on mental health topics, but not only on every level, probably. And I was wondering, I do feel a lot of change from like a complete outsider um, on the topic of sexology. And I wonder whether you feel it too, and whether you feel like this is a good direction that we're going into as a society, or whether you feel like it's not, or there would be better directions to go into. I think it would be pessimistic to say no, because I think it is, we are, we are improving. Um, STI rates are decreasing. There is better, better medical treatment. People have more knowledge. Sex education is improving. The fact that this course exists is a sign that there's, that there's improvements. And I think the big one is research funding, that more universities across the world are willing to fund research into sexuality-related topics. I think the no's would be the areas that we could improve on. I think they're not necessarily no, we're we're going in a wrong direction, but I think there are still lots of areas that we can improve. And that would, for me personally, have a lot to do with sexism, have a lot to do with female genital mutilation I think that's a massive under under talked um, topic but that's a whole podcast in and of itself I believe that we can also do more for the minorities in our cultures so like the neurodivergent sectors the people with disabilities but then also those that are aging I believe that there is a lot more to do for people that have menopause or um, people that have chronic disabilities or, or chronic illnesses, sorry. So yes, we're going in the right direction, but maybe slower than we should be in some areas. Yeah, I agree with Sarah. I think that the, the biggest difference that I've seen, even just since I was young and now, is on the identity revolution that we've seen in like, the early 2000s and 2010s. Um, so a lot of research and a lot of change for sexuality and identity and the LGBTQ plus community, not the minorities within that, but I perceive a big change in that. And I, I think the answer to your question, I, I took it a little bit more personal and like, I was like also thinking about cultural differences. Like when I'm in Italy, I'm completely hopeless and I think that nothing has changed and that maybe yes at a higher level like research and professionals 
But then I think, okay, the professionals are such a small percentage of people that are in the country. And then the rest of the population, I think that there is a massive gap between the information and information actually getting to the people. And then that scares me and makes me pessimistic. And then when I'm maybe in other countries, I feel that that gap is smaller, but that could be my, you know, bias perspective just because I am Italian. Um, I often hear the sentence like that we live in a hyper-sexualized society and that we're uh, like, that's this is becoming bigger and bigger. And like, I was wondering if you agree with this or not. And if like it's a bad thing, like I just hear the sentence a lot and I don't really know what to make of it. I think that's a really fun topic because there was a research um, published last year that we are having the least amount of sex ever. Yeah. Our generation, especially like the 20 something year olds are so unsexually active compared to previous generations that it's quite funny um yeah the internet of course it's super hypersexual we have porn within two clicks on every mobile device that there is that is so extreme and we've never had that before um and then that has that is negative that has some serious negative consequences but the average person being hypersexed um no i i just i disagree there has been sex forever since the history of time um thank god because now we're all here but no, like they, we've we've always been having sex, and that has also always been a taboo, and that's always been a talking point. Um, people are always going to criticize when it comes to topics like sex. So I don't think that there's any need to take the statement seriously, and I don't even think that it, if it were true, it would be something negative anyway, because surely sex is great it's pleasurable and it's fun and it's enjoyed if it's done under the correct circumstances there is no reason not to have loads of sex yeah I agree with Sarah and I was going to say a similar thing like I don't think that we as humans are hypersexual I think that everything else has been hypersexualized or has made into something sexual like we have taken things that are outside of our own self and body and we have made those into sexual things i think that like what you say there that in the example of the hypersexualization of women that you see in the media but that has always been seen in the media so that that these are the problem areas of hypersexualization but they're not new and if anything i think there's a lot of really interesting uh women out there right now that are tackling that in a really cool way and it will have its own development. It will change because it always does. So I don't think that it's a it's yeah. something that we've got to worry about right now. Yeah, super interesting. I, I don't know. I feel like we talk about this a lot. Um, like we hear the sentence a lot, but I don't really think most people know whether it's true or what it means. I think it would be interesting if you could share anything specific that you, since it is such a broad field, um, something that you find particularly interesting, like a favorite fact you have or something you particularly value or wish that people knew about the topic? Actually, this is a fact that I've shared before. Essentially, it's about how premature ejaculation came to be. When women's desire also started to become a thing and people realized that, you know, women also have desire, the need for sex, the want for sex. And before that, 
women were just a means to have children, essentially. Like there was a lot of focus on the reproduction and the reproductory function of sex. And so, you know, when men and women had sex, well, the man would come and that would be the end of the sexual moment. And then, you know, nine months later, of a child. Um, but then this really changed with the sexual revolution in the 60s and the 70s. So <laughs> women realized that, you know, maybe they took a little longer to uh, get to their climax, or even if it wasn't about the climax, it was just about the moment. And men realized that coming within the first minute, well, was going to be a little bit of a problem. So I just thought that it was very cool to realize that this is the result of socialization basically and the relationship between men and women in a sexual context and yeah this is what I the the fun fact that I tell people when they ask me to tell them a fun fact because Mm -hmm. if it wouldn't have been for the discovery of women's desire then it wouldn't have really mattered whether men come within two minutes or 10 or 30 or never because that was never the focus of sex And I am so glad that that has changed and that now the focus is like, it can be reproduction, but so many other things. I don't want to say that I'm glad that it's a problem, but I guess that it had to happen and it gives space for something else, which is a woman's role in sex. And I think I like totally agree with you because it's also one of my like favorite um, fun facts to tell people about what we, what we do. Um, and I think the cool bit as well of like that premature ejaculation, like you say, it's functional. It like that's so beneficial in the animal kingdom. Like you see this all the time that the the male species is able to ejaculate super quickly because it's just for reproduction. The thing that you said as well about it, uh, women's pleasure being like not only did women find their pleasure, but it also became like socially desirable for a man to pleasure their partner. Yeah. That then it was this like social shame of like, what, you only last two minutes? Um, that that's had a massive impact very recently on the rates of premature ejaculation diagnosis. And actually that that's part of the diagnosis as well, that um that you uh that the the partner must be pleasured or it's the time is insufficient for partner pleasure. So the only diagnosis that involves the partner, which I think is so interesting. Which also shows how like subjective it is to the couple because maybe I come within five minutes, but that's not pleasurable enough for you. Or maybe it is. So premature ejaculation is very, very specific to the partners. And what you were saying with the functionality in the animal kingdom, um do you remember that lecture that we had once and they explained no they were talking about this australian spider like desert spider and how uh, the female eats the spider as they're having you know their sexual report and which is why it's very important for the male spider to be really big because the bigger it is the longer the female will take to eat it but the longer he survives so that he can ejaculate if she exactly. eats before he ejaculates, then he's not got like good gene. So he needs to be really, really big. So the female takes a longer time and then the male can Um, And then our professor would explain, well, that obviously doesn't happen in like in humans. So why can't we just enjoy a longer sexual moment? Like then think yeah. about just getting to the end. See, you know? It's so, such a wide topic that we even discussed by this. Mm. But then was this was only the case, like the fact that it became uh, a disorder due to a social phenomenon is only true for premature ejaculation, right? Because for 
like delayed or not like especially when it doesn't happen then that used to be a problem already yeah for yeah yeah it's only premature ejaculation is the only um dysfunction that involves the partner and um interestingly as well that people who are diagnosed with premature ejaculation they report actually less pleasure themselves it's not like it's a particularly good orgasm that they're having um, it's actually quite a low uh, low pleasurable experience so it does also cause distress to the individual but that's then exacerbated through the partner's displeasure as well exactly there is a big misconception in thinking like oh because they're ejaculating really quickly then that means that you know they're having a great time yeah they're having mm -hmm. a great time and while that is often the case in other scenarios it's it, it really isn't in premature ejaculation Sarah, what's your fun fact? Oh, my fun fact. Less fun, I think. Um, I think I'm just baffled every time in class or in our private reading and research how often medical sexism has hindered the advancement of sexology, but also medicine in general. Um, that there literally isn't a topic that we've that we talk about and cover that isn't touched by medical sexism. Um, and of course, like that's so terribly sad, but just really interesting to to note it, to highlight it and remember it so that it can be improved on. I think the biggest one for me was probably the invention of Viagra that you'd think, you know, where, where does a woman fall into this? It's not, it's not got anything to do with sexism. And we learned that Viagra was actually invented by accident. They were looking into uh, heart disease medication and then they found that a load of the men in the studies were having suddenly no problems with their erections anymore. And of course, that's there's big money in that. Big Pharma was best day of their life. Uh, so they immediately rebranded it and changed what it was going to be used for and sold it as erection medication. And of course, this is great. And it has changed so many lives for the better. And it's really good that this medication exists. However, they completely scrapped the heart medication. They've never, they've never further pursued it. And actually it was working because it increases blood flow. They've never looked into the benefits that it may have in women. And we do know that it increases blood flow to the vagina in women, which increases lubrication, which can increase arousal. Um, not necessarily always needed, but there are cases specifically maybe in postmenopausal women when this could be a really beneficial medication, but there's not that much money in that so never mind we'll just focus on the men yeah because no one cares about postmenopause. yeah well, at the time women's pleasure wasn't really considered it wasn't we weren't encouraging women to talk about their pleasure there, there was no topic that women would be would need this or would pay for it so whereas men they, they needed it um so yeah that that was a big one I think of course, you've got birth control has always been focused on women when we've ne we've just neglected the men and when they have found birth control that works in men and it had side effects of headaches or mood swings and pain, it was like, oh, they can't go through that. But that's what the women's, well, the women's side effects of the pill, for example, are, uh, we all know how big those pages are. Um, there's pain, there's research into periods, you know, that we've, as as women, we just suck up period pain and if I, I don't believe that if the man was having to go through a week of pain once a month that 
that this would still exist. I don't believe that we wouldn't have found a solution for that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, all the drugs are tested on the male species of that animal um, because the hormones in the female species are too difficult to control or they could be confounding effects. So we don't even know how most drugs that are on the market affect, affect the female species before they're given to women. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I could go on forever about how it affects literally everything. Um, but I think it's really interesting and something we should all bear in mind. Even just our professor in class, like Professor Yanini, he's like the master of sexology himself. And during his classes, he would always be like so knowledgeable and like perfect in all his facts when he was talking about men. But then as soon as the topic would shift to women, he was like, oh, now we get to the really hard part. And we don't know this and we don't know this and I don't know this. And then we would ask questions and he also find it, found it hard to like answer questions. And that's a professor who is essentially the best at what he does in Europe, if not in the entire world. At least that's what he says. Um, <laughs> and he also didn't know. So... Yeah, let's just prove this. Crazy. Very interesting. Um, not not a fun fact, maybe, but a very... Not a fun fact. Not a fun fact. No, but a, a very true fact, let's say. And yeah, it does shift your perspective of, like... I think this is true for psychology, but it's true for psychology and other fields. Everywhere also in research. Um, maybe we can um, talk about a bit, like... Uh, what you're doing currently and maybe this also connects with what you would like to do in the future maybe it doesn't I'm not sure so currently I believe that we are both working on our theses dissertations um, and mine does connect very much with what I would like to do in the future um, so I'm doing research at the moment into the sexual well-being of women who have been diagnosed with cancer I'm specifically comparing the difference of sexual well-being between women who have been diagnosed with a reproductive cancer, so the, a cancer of breast, cervix, uterine, and vagina, compared to a non-reproductive cancer. So that's all the rest of them that you can get. Um, and I'm seeing if there's a difference in sexual well-being. I believe that we have focused our research on of, of sex and cancer heavily on the reproductive ones because there's a direct link. But I believe that the non-reproductive cancers have just of a detrimental impact on women. And we, we need to provide an answer and provide some more solutions there. Um, just to make things a little more interesting, I've also added that I, I think sex education could be a protective factor. As of what I said earlier as well, if, um, if we provide education, we protect people. We know that a lack of education is a massive risk factor for later life sexual dysfunction. So I think that if we could tailor the sex education for women who have been diagnosed with cancer specific to what they may experience in the next few months, either directly from the cancer or from the treatment or then in recovery, I think that even just having that knowledge could be could protect their sexual well-being if you can protect sexual well-being you can protect their relationship you can protect their general quality of life and these then transfer into recovery you can improve recovery times you can improve adjustment to it um and there's a really scary statistic that six out of ten women are who have been diagnosed with cancer end up separating from their partner 
And if we could stop those, the the what the separations that don't need to occur from the cancer stress, then that could be really beneficial to the women's recovery. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing this in just a short online survey. So far, the results are looking really interesting, but I'm still in active data collection, so I can't reveal anything. But yeah, it's really, really exciting. Sarah has done a great job at um, sharing her survey around. We've like put up posters everywhere in the faculty. Um, <laughs> it's very... It must be hard, right, to, to find people in participants. Yeah, it's been really difficult. Um, I'm so appreciative of everyone who has shared the survey like online or yeah, with hanging up posters. I've got people all over the world printing off my posters, putting them up places for me. So I'm really appreciative. And I've had an overwhelming amount of people that have done it. Hmm. Um, it's still going to be open for a couple more months. I really need some more women who are who have been diagnosed with a non-reproductive cancer um just so the comparisons can be a bit more equal but yeah it's it's been really tricky because it's of course a very niche population the the cancer diagnosis needed to be uh before menopause current menopausal status doesn't matter and their cancer diagnosis needed to be in the last five years so I narrowed it down very small and um it that yeah this relates then to what I want to do in the future because I'd really like to do a PhD on this topic. Uh, oncosexology would be the general theme. And mm -hmm. this is a very niche population. I'd really love to expand the research, of course, if it's significant and I found something important. I'd love to expand it to men, to postmenopausal uh, women. And I've also been having really interesting conversations at the minute with a cancer charity for queer people. So for gender fluid, intersex, so... You know, where do they fall in all of this research? There's a massive gap there as well. So um, yeah, I'd like to start doing more research in that field to close that gap. Super interesting. I can't wait to read uh, and see what you are going to create with this. Very cool. Ludo, what about you? <laughs> I am currently researching the use and experience of sex toys in couples based on their sexual functioning. So to break it down a little bit, obviously, we know that sex toys have been massively on the rise in the past couple of years, especially after COVID-19 and user experience ratings are really high. Most people that use sex toys are satisfied with them and they love them and enjoy them. But one thing that is hasn't been like uh, researched yet, which I think is very important, is the use of sex toys based on sexual function. So who is using the sex toys? Why are they using the sex toys? Because if we are just taking the people that are using sex toys and looking at their experience, but we don't really know anything about their sexual functioning and their um, sexual life, well, then we are only, it's an incomplete story. It's only half of the story. And so it was very intriguing to me to see if there are patterns of use and experience based on you know how good or bad our sexual functioning is and um, measuring that differently for um, men and women I'm looking specifically at couples just to make my life a little bit more complicated 
Um, it's a dyadic research. So I'm comparing, yeah, I'm comparing the sexual functioning of uh, the partners in the relationship and seeing if their sexual functioning influences their own sexual use and their partner's sexual use. It's going to be like one big model. I guess in some way it does have to do with what I would like to do in the future, which is couples therapy and sex therapy. I would like to um, go more into detail about trauma and traumatology and all of that i do believe that sex stories can play a big role in that if we look at uh trauma it means that you need to look at sexual functioning so sex stories are always going to be a part of the picture um also as part of therapy for some people and hopefully more so in the future so that's kind of the the path that i would like to take and I'm very excited for my result. It's also really fun. I completed it with my partner and I thought it was a really nice activity. You complete it individually, but it was just a really interesting conversation starter. We talked about some really nice things afterwards and um, yeah, it's something different to do to fill out a survey with your with your other other half, with your partner. Yeah, like you say, I think it can also be like a fun and intimate activity I think it can yeah be, very it brings couples maybe to like ask themselves a lot of questions or like it can be a conversation started about their sex life so yeah I think a lot of exciting things are coming up for the both of us can't wait to know the results I'm not so sure about the the data analysis part but yeah I think that it's going to be an exciting couple of months ahead of us very busy <laughs> few months I think yeah with everything and it would be super cool to do like a follow-up or like a post or something on what the results actually um are in the future yeah definitely Uh, i would love to know um what you find out just something to add that like sarah now was mentioning how she would like to go into oncosexology and how Mm -hmm. i would like to go uh more into the trauma part but it is self-explanatory to the introduction that Sarah gave at the beginning of how many uh, facets there are to sexology and to what we study. Um, yeah, to say it again, there are so there are endless fields in sexology and things that someone could look at and the path that they could take. Well, yeah, you can take it from a, a really medical perspective. You could go into the biology uh, area. You could. More go into the pharmacology sorry more like the sociological part yeah or oh, there's um really interesting research at the minute being done on mindfulness and the use of mindfulness in sex dysfunctions there's very specific couples counseling you've got all the different types of psychology cbt psychotherapy yeah literally whatever you want you it, it can exist addiction drugs anything literally anything because like we said sex is part of everything so yeah it's everywhere do you have any like tips or suggestions let's say I'm a person that that is really interested in the field and would like to do my education in it what would you suggest I think it's um pretty tricky my experience has been because it's so new uh there isn't really a clear career path um the the journey that you should take to get anywhere doesn't really exist it depends heavily on your country uh where you want to live where you want to practice but i think as far as i understand the main two ways of becoming a sexologist is either 
uh, medical you become you do a medical degree first and then you sort of like convert over into sexology and sexual health or uh, as Luda and I have both done with psychology and then going from a psychological perspective into sexology um it's tricky and unfortunately there isn't very much um very very many degrees available at the moment yeah what I wanted to add is and I think this counts for most disciplines not necessarily just sexology but more so in this one because it is so small and so new it's contacts look for people literally google people um you hear someone you see a page on instagram anything that you see that you think can lead you there try just talk to someone email someone call someone like um there are people out there it's just they're just very rare and they're very hard to find but they are there and because it's such a, such a niche um discipline we're mostly all kind to each other and we want to help each other out at least that's been my experience so far and people out there can provide you some guidance um and we're all yeah I, I totally well. second that that um networking in sexology is is key there's not that many people right now that are doing this so if you can find some names from research articles and or instagram or whatever you're using and and just ask people because it's um it's such an important field that a lot of the researchers that are already existing they want more people they want more people to join so they're very keen to help and, and give us a helping hand yeah. um but yeah it's new so I would also say that a lot of the career from what I perceive is very um research-based at the minute or if you go into um uh, psychology and then do like clinical psychology and then become a sexologist after that or become a doctor and then do sexual health, I think are the probably two clearest ways to do it um, or research. Yeah, it is very uncertain. I think Sarah and I have emailed like, I don't know, 500 people combined in the past <laughs> two, three months. Um, yeah. But most of them did reply and they were nice and they were helpful. And yeah, that's kind of like the like the good thing about being not too many in a discipline like there are a lot of bad like it's mostly complicated I guess to as you're saying find out what you what your next step will be but at least um reaching people who have done great things is not that um far-fetched I guess yeah and there's some very inspiring people that's what sexology is and that's what we do great thank you and Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge. Um, I could go um, like hours uh, spending on this conversation because it's super interesting. Um, and thank you to all the listeners who has, have stayed with us so far. And thank we'll you very talk. much. Yeah, thank, <laughs> thank you for joining Shrink It Out podcast and being here with us and sharing all your wise and cool words. Yes. It was lovely to have you. <laughs> lovely to join. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone.